Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter, for all the good songwriting and music you play. WalterParks.com if you're interested in learning more about Walter's music. If you would like to contact me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can email me through my website, JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. What's going on in your field? What is your story? So I await your email. If you would like to know more about the name Twice Five Miles and where that came from, TwiceFiveMiles.com is a good place to look. There you'll find not only the answer to the question, where did Twice Five Miles come from, you'll also find little tidbits that will help you get your creative work over that finish line. If you have been listening to this show for a while, you know that I interview people from all walks of life. Most especially, I look at the creative walks of life. Occasionally, I depart from that. Today, I'm staying in the creative lane with a wonderful, brilliant poet named Kathy Lynn Che. I met Kathy a few years ago in the poetry scene in the New York area, and we've stayed in loose connection over that time, and when I reached out to her and invited her to be on this show, she said, absolutely, I would be happy to. And so on that note, Kathy Lynn Che, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much for having me, James. And what I would like to do to start this conversation, I would like for you to give us a bit of a reflection on what you would like us to know about you. Who are you? How do you function in the world? When you wake up in the morning, what, what do you think about? When I wake up in the morning, what do I think about? I think these days I'm thinking a lot about the pandemic, what it means to make a life, what it means to find joy, happiness in a time when there's so much death around us. My parents lived through the Vietnam War, and during that time, I believe people were making comparisons early on in the pandemic where American soldiers lost 60,000 people over the course of America's longest war. Just to think that we've arrived at this place, and the way that the pandemic looks, it isn't something that we can fully process in quite the same way. It doesn't look like any of the narratives of disaster that we really know of. So that's something I think about. What does survival mean when people are living this kind of low-key, quiet life that inquires some sense of isolation, some sense of the limits of the body's ability to handle not having human company? During this time, I am thinking a lot about poetry and its role in my life personally and what it means to make a life where that can be at the center when you have all of this other demand around you with time and capitalism and self-care, which is 
such a strange thing to think about because our governments and our systems and the ways that our family structures have evolved and generated this kind of lack of care. I have to make this checklist just to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. So those are things I'm thinking about. That's the daily morning talk. There's other things that I think a lot about too. Well, that's a great place to start. Mention the reality of people dying from COVID. There's an invisibility factor about that. You actually don't see it. I know you mentioned your parents in, in Vietnam. That was a very different kind of rigor, if you will, where it was right in front of you. It was in front of a lot of people in the world. So how are you able to take this sensibility and turn it into art? Do you do that or do you just think about it and later you work with it? Yeah, I love that you asked the question about visibility and invisibility. Vietnam was a very visible war. It was captured in photographs. The iconography of that war are very present. Somehow, what I think of when I think of the pandemic are these charts and graphs that uh, we refer to periodically. The Johns Hopkins Center has a worldometer with a just a set of numbers, a world map where things are hot spots and just the numbers rising over time. So it becomes very mathematical. It becomes very intellectual. Part of it is also our grieving becomes confined over Zoom. You're not situated in proximity with other bodies or you don't see other bodies in proximity with one another so that they can grieve together, can do the rituals of holding one another, hearing one another, touching one another. So within our community, we had a writer pass away due to COVID, New York City public school teacher. She was 31 and she had just gotten an agent. She's Cambodian American. And she had a novel that she was finishing. And I just think about what that would have meant to so many Cambodian Americans. I grew up in Long Beach, which is the largest population of Cambodians outside of Cambodia itself. So there's a huge population that I grew up alongside, basically of different types of refugees and different types of marginalized people escaping from one type of violence or another. I do think that there is something disembodying about this time. And I think that what writing does is at its best moments, it brings me back to my body. It gives me chills. It gives me pleasure. It gives me sadness and joy, and it connects me back. I think that's part of what I'm thinking about with this time. Our friend Ocean Vong, mm-hmm. he mentioned a title he that he thought I should use for a poetry book once. He said, you should call your book Felt Absence. Mm. And I loved that idea, the invisibility of things. And then that's what happens here in this COVID time. I think we are collectively feeling the absence of those who are passing on, even though we don't see them. Somehow we psychically pick it up in the in the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. That's really beautiful, this idea that is something also communal happening. There's a way that this pandemic has not left anybody untouched. And nobody's life 
has been not changed in the U.S. at least. I don't think a single American can say that their life has not been affected or changed in, in some kind of way. And I suspect that's probably true uh, all over the world. Certainly there are people who maybe haven't had their lives dramatically changed, but I'll bet not many because this mm-hmm. pandemic is just spread out everywhere and we are all aware of its encroachment, like mm-hmm. the night coming on, the encroachment of something. Even if it hasn't arrived yet, it's still possibly on the way, a bit like the unseen monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. that's another amazing factor. It doesn't know borders. I mean, there are national policies that sometimes affect how many people die. The disease certainly did not really leave anybody really alone. Turning back just a moment to Cambodia and your your heritage, most people who remember the Vietnam War, they remember Vietnam. And it's been a long time ago now. And yet wars never really leave the immediacy of the historical memory of, of anyone who was involved. Cambodia also experienced the war of Southeast Asia in dramatic ways. How does that still affect you and the work that you do now as a poet? My parents are from Vietnam, but Cambodia is our neighbor. And there's a very complicated history with Vietnam and Cambodia in that where my parents met in Saigon and South Vietnam, that which you know, became South Vietnam as North and South split, it was once Cambodia or Kampuchea, right? It was land that Vietnamese people had seized, taken, colonized. There's a history of violence there that I can't ignore. There's a way that the war very much implicated Laos, the secret war in Laos, Um, Hmong folks and Cambodian folks. The Khmer Rouge was very much connected to the rise of communism in Vietnam. Pol Pot, his rule ended with some Vietnamese intervention too. So it's just a very knotted up history. And the other aspect is my father is from an indigenous group that was taken over by Vietnam. In the central Vietnam, there was the kingdom of Champa, And so my last name is kind of unusual for a Vietnamese person. It's C-H-E. That's what all people in the kingdom of Champa were named by the Vietnamese for a while as a way to distinguish them. It was a matrilineal culture. It was illegal for a Vietnamese person to marry a Cham woman because then you would grow that empire. People are very interested in the American narrative of that, but it's very complicated. And the other thing is my parents were refugees who ended up in the Philippines. They they got on a boat. It was a small vessel, like eight or nine people. My dad was a fisherman, and so he knew how to navigate and drive a boat. So they just went east to the Philippines. And when they were there, stayed in Subic Bay for a month. They entered the land. Then they ended up in the refugee camp for about 11 months. And what I'm working on right now is just their story of being hired as extras for Apocalypse Now when it was being filmed in the Philippines in 1976. So the war ended in 1975. My parents would have been able to come directly to the U.S. if they came before July 4th, 1975, Independence Day. But they missed that deadline by about, I believe, two days. So that meant they stayed in the refugee camp 
for 11 months near the tail end of their time, that's when they were hired with all of the Vietnamese refugees to play extras in the film. Thinking a lot about visibility and invisibility, there's a kind of way that my parents were both very visible. The lines and the visuals of Apocalypse Now are very much entrenched in, in our imaginations of what the war looks like. In many ways, my parents were used to authenticate this art. He really wanted it to feel like the real thing. And the only Vietnamese people in the Philippines at the time were refugees. That's the only people you could get access to. So their invisible narrative in this highly visible film is something that I'm working with in poetry, but also in collage and film stills and using family photographs as different ways to intervene in those scenes and those texts. So that is definitely what I'm also thinking a lot about, but usually I do that after work in the evening time. <laughs> you bring up an interesting notion in, in my thinking. You may know that the actors spend lots of time trying to drop into the character and have some sort of experience. They'll go off and work in a field or they'll go work at the store or sign up for a law firm or whatever the role they're playing. So these folks, your parents and the other refugees, they didn't have to do much character development. They probably brought the memories to the set. So I imagine there was a fair amount of energetic action happening, even with the extras. Yeah, they didn't have to do a certain type of life research, but it's interesting. So some of the characters track really closely to their lives that they had to play. Even though they were extras, they had assigned roles, right? So one set of characters that they had to play is in the famous napalm scene where Robert Duvall's standing and giving kind of like his soliloquy about napalm. My parents are part of this group in the back of the screen walking very slowly across and my parents say, oh, look, that's us. We're pretending to play POWs. My mother, during her escape attempt that didn't work, she did spend one night in jail. And my dad has been caught going AWOL when he was a South Vietnamese soldier to take his high school exit exam. So he was caught and also thrown in jail. So it's not as if they don't know what it means to be a prisoner at all, but it's not the same as being caught by the enemy in quite the same way. My mom also has the scene where she's off scene, but she's right at the edge. She plays a Viet Cong. So that's not her role. So on some level, it is people who you've imagined or seen very closely, but there is some character playing happening, I suppose. My dad was playing an interpreter for the US. He was not exactly in that role. So I, I suppose they were placed into these interesting scenarios. I'm sure that filming for such a major blockbuster and the amount of sitting around and then jumping into place and sitting around and jumping into place must have been a different experience, certainly. Well, how did they get from the movie set in the Philippines to the States? So the movie set was, it was being filmed in the Philippines at the time. So they were outside of Manila, which is on the Western side of Luzon. So they were brought to Belair, which is a fishing village, beach town where 
some Americans had discovered surfing at some point. So that's why the surf scene was filmed there. So then they had um, somebody who sponsored them to the US. My father's niece essentially um, married an American GI. So she comes over to the US first and they have kids together. They live in Northeast LA. I think their first place they moved to was either Alhambra or El Monte. So when the filming, I think, had concluded, they returned to the refugee camp. Everybody had money because they got paid essentially U.S. minimum wage for a month or two. So they had maybe even more money than they had ever had in their lives. And my mom, she was a seamstress, a tailor, and she was only 22 at the time. So she was so excited. She's like, oh my gosh, people have money. They want clothes because my mom at the time, she only had two changes of clothes. So she said in the middle of the scheme where she would take orders to measure, cut, and sew shirts and pants, they got called to come to the U.S. So they boarded a plane that ended up in Hawaii on a layover and ended up in L.A., but she said, oh, I, if only I could have stayed a little longer, I would have made so much money. She would say, yeah, like people would pay me a whole dollar for a shirt. And I'm thinking to myself, actually, when she moved to the U.S., she got a job immediately at a garment factory. She was a garment worker in downtown L.A. She's getting paid, you know, two ten an hour minimum wage. When you work in the garment factory, your sewing clothes really piecemeal. It's not the same as being a tailor. And you were born in L.A. With when they were living there? My parents came to the U.S. in 1976. My brother was born a year later, 1977. I was born in 1980. I grew up in Highland Park, which is in northeast L.A. Then I grew up in Long Beach until I was 18. I moved when I was 10. And Highland Park was very formative to my life. And I've only more recently accepted Long Beach as being very formative as well to my life and my life experience and my knowledges. So as a poet, how did you get started in that artistic expression? So much of what I've been describing is my parents' life stories. And so my parents are incredible storytellers at the kitchen table they'll launch into a very intricate story and they're collaborating on this storytelling experience together. That is what started me in terms of becoming a writer. I think so much of writing in my young life was just absorbing and listening to them and their rhythms and not just rhythms, but I suppose I had a lot to write about because I was listening to their lives so carefully so I think that is a major component of what got me interested in poetry. Why poetry in particular is a big question. I don't know in particular, except that it just always made sense to me. I remember in school, whenever we needed to read or write a poem, it clicked instantly and it was the most exciting Thing I could do in that moment. It always felt like magic. It always felt like a spell. And sometimes this happens in prose, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes prose can be a vehicle to get from one place to another, whether it be plot or an idea. But poetry feels like it's about the language itself. It's about the magic itself. So 
I mean, there are moments when I pull out that aren't a poem. So I used to love reading my brother's comic books. And there was a line I, I just remember very specifically. Oh, revenge is a cruel mistress. I was like, what does that mean? It was, it was in an X-Men comic. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I was always snatching phrases and words that made me reveal something that was mysterious about life that I wanted to know more about, or it would stop my heart. I would write over and over again, this poem by E. Cummings. This is when I was in high school. Since feeling is first. I don't know if that's who I am, but it's maybe an aspiration to who I want to be. I loved Langston Hughes. I really credit my teachers a lot, but I think it was just a natural energy that I, I gravitated toward because it felt not just mysterious, but also heroically clarifying. Being in the 80s and the, and the 90s, I was involved with a, a company called Poetry Alive. Mm. And we memorized poems from the school textbook and toured them around the country. We would start in September and we would go all the way through to May. Our hook was we'll memorize poems from the school textbook and perform them as theater for the school students. And so as a result, I memorized 600 poems at least because the teachers would send requests. So we just had to just keep memorizing. And so Langston Hughes is one of those and E.E. E. E. Cummings and anybody that was in the textbook, we, we memorized and then presented the work. And the Poetry Live was working all over the country. We had eight teams of poets traveling. 500,000 students a year heard these poets or these actors, basically we would yell at them because we have a big gymnasium and we'd have to scream out. Robert Frost poem or scream out Langston Hughes. <laughs> but, and it was comical in a way, but it also gave all of us, myself included, a great sense of how to handle those wonderful textbook poems. Mm -hmm. and, and on that note, I was wondering perhaps maybe you might have some pieces you'd like to read for us. Do you have anything available that, that we could hear? Sure, maybe I'll get back to you on that, but I want to respond to you about that performance work that you did. What a difficult task and what a blessed task it seems to me. My very first job out of college, I was working for minimum wage at a daycare slash preschool, and I would sit a child in my lap, actually, and she was three. The book she always wanted to read was a children's book of poems. It was specifically in Long Beach and the person who was running the daycare was a black woman and she wanted the black children that she tended to, to have access to black poets. So we would read Langston Hughes, we would read County Cullen, we would read Gwendolyn Brooks. And so she would plop herself in my lap and put this book in my hand and be like, read to me. <laughs> it was very thrilling. I had abandoned poetry for a little bit um, to become a high school English teacher. And so it made me feel like poems in that moment were so alive. The 500,000 students that you reached and it was hard to reach them. Well, I have some questions. One, in Vietnam, everybody memorizes poems as part of your grade school curriculum. That's not really done anymore. And I think that memorizing poems or memorizing literature in general is amazing because 
I have these lines that come to me when life presents itself with this occasion. So I was walking and telling a story to a friend. And then he mentioned a passage from the Bible. And he's like, oh, you know what this reminds me of? It's like, this is what you need to do. You need to say to this moment, you know, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering, do you think that if poetry were memorized more often, that maybe you wouldn't have to shout into these gymnasiums? Well, in all fairness to shouting in the gymnasiums, we also had opportunities to, to do the work on a smaller scale in more intimate situations, like a classroom with 30 students rather than a gymnasium with a microphone in the middle of the basketball court and four or 500 kids on the bleachers. So when you have those large cavernous situations and the goal of the principal often was, well, we have to do an assembly program. This is it. Here's your mind. You bring all the kids in. You do the assembly program. We want you to be through at 11 o'clock. And when 11 o'clock came, we were through. And the principal could say, check, done that. We're moving on. We also had lots of opportunities to work with students over, say, a week-long residency, where we would go in and ask the students to pick poetry they would like to memorize and perform. And, and we would work with them in the class periods for a whole week. And at the end of the week, they would perform something. They didn't develop it all that much, but they did have fun with it. And so our goal mm -hmm. was to say, hey, this is something that is serious, and yet it's a lot of fun as well. So you can be goofy if you want, or you can be serious if you want. I remember one time, there was a Langston Hughes poem, and it's very short. And I think it's just called poem, but it's, I loved my friend. He went away from me. There's mm -hmm. nothing more to say. The poem ends soft as it began. I loved my friend. So we often would use that as a performance piece or a piece to memorize because mm -hmm. it's easy. You know, what's the first line? I loved my friend. Well, what's the first line again? Oh, I loved my friend. Tell me the first line. Oh, I love. Oh, well, you've got that memorized. Now let's go to the second one. He went away from me. So it was really quick to memorize. So I was in an eighth grade class and one of the students was performing it. And I said, well, what does this mean to you? I loved my friend. Do you have a friend? Can you tell us about a friend maybe you lost or an imaginary friend? And she said, oh, yes, I have something in mind. I said, well, what is it? She said, I'm a zookeeper. And I've been taking care of, of an animal that's the last of its species. And it just died. Oh. And, 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 and Kathy, I, I, I didn't know what to say. She caught me. That was such an adult answer. <laughs> and, and then I said, well, then. Why don't you do the poem, Thinking of the Animal, the Last of a Species? And it was very good. She, she was really engaged in it. The question of memorization, when I talked with people about memorizing, I tried to move them away from thinking I have to memorize it in the rote way. Two rows diverse in a yellow wood. Two rows diverse in a yellow wood. Sorry, I could not travel both. Sorry, I could not travel both. Two rows diverse in a yellow wood. And you just go over it and over it until at some point you actually can say it. But I often will tell people memorization is not about memory. It might be bodyization rather than memorization because you take the, the material into your body by way of your mind and your voice and your dreams and your imagination. And you just let it live there until somewhere down the line, you simply just know it. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this thing for the last 
four or five months now. I walk every day. I'm out in Taos, New Mexico, so I'm way out in the country, and there's nobody here. It's a dirt road. You go down the road, and I carry a piece of poetry with me, and I will memorize as I go. I will play around with one line for maybe an entire walk or maybe four or five lines. And right now I'm memorizing a piece by Jacques Prévert called Barbara, and it's Mm -hmm. in French and English, and I'm memorizing both at the same time. Well, I don't actually have to memorize both. I memorize the French and then I can just translate it to the English because I'm spending a lot of time on one line. So Mm -hmm. memorization is more than just getting it in and sending it back out rote. It's about dwelling with the material in a way that allows it to integrate itself into your whole psychology. And then when you actually say it, it's so part of who you are that it becomes conversational. Mm-hmm. rather than read. A good example would be the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. If you were to read it, you, you might read it like this. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table, let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. That's beautiful. It's almost impossible to do the conversational part if you just memorize it because it hasn't decided to house itself in your bones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there you go. That's a bigger view of memorization than a lot of people have. Yeah. And it, it really uh, allows your body to inhabit the words and your life to ha- inhabit it. I love it. I was just thinking what a beautiful life it is to go and memorize a poem as you walk every day. My French class in college, we read a Jacques Prévert poem. I remember being so moved by this poem. It's very simple. I remember my French teacher saying, France, you'll have poems taught as a treat. It's like dessert. <laughs> I love thinking about that. I learned how to speak some French when I was an adult returning student and went back to college when I was 31. I didn't have any French before that. So I mm. have been around French a lot and I've spent maybe a total of three years in Paris. So I know the energy of the language. Even so, it's still difficult to get the, the words quite right. I, I'm quite Americanized when it comes to French. I have a terrible accent, as you can tell. But okay, I have the poem, Déjeuner de, du matin. Do you know this one? No, but please, uh, let's have a little poetry. Let's (laughs) let's try. This is so scary for me, but here we go. Déjeuner du matin, Jacques Prévert. Il a mis le café dans la tasse. Il a mis le lait dans la tasse de café. Il a mis le sucre dans le café au lait avec la petite cuillère. Il a tourné. Il a bu le café au lait et il a reposé la tasse sans me parler. Il a allumé une cigarette 
Il a fait des ronds avec la fumée. Il a mis les cendres dans la cendrée sans me parler, sans me regarder. Il s'est levé. Il a mis son chapeau sur la tête. Il a mis son manteau de pluie parce qu'il pleuvait. Et il est parti sur la pluie sans une parole, sans me regarder. Et moi, j'ai pris ma tête dans ma main et j'ai pleuré. This is like the Langston Hughes poem in some ways. He poured the coffee into the cup. He poured the milk into the cup of coffee. He put the sugar into the coffee with milk with a small spoon. He turned, he drank the coffee and he put down the cup without any word to me. He lit one cigarette. He made circles with the smoke. He shook off the ash into the ashtray without any word to me, without any look at me. He got up, he put on his hat on his head. He put on his raincoat because it was raining and he left into the rain without any word to me, without any look at me. And I buried my face in my hands and I cried. It's better in the French, but. <laughs> but, but what I liked about what I like about this is for people listening, as we're talking about, we're really talking about the poetics of being on this earth, and the simplicity of the English translation. Mm -hmm. He put the spoon in the cup. He lit a cigarette. He moved his hand around the air. So each one of those phrases, one wouldn't think of them as poetic, and yet when you put them all together, even though the English translation lacks the poetics and the musicality of the French, you still have a sense of something going on beyond just mm -hmm. he lit the cigarette. And to me, that's that's the essence of what poetry is all about. There's, there's something going on, something magical, something beyond us that we sense, but we don't see back to the invisibility part. That's why I think poetry is interesting. And also, I love that you read that piece in French, and it was halting, and you were trying to pronounce your words, and, and you were stumbling along. And there's just great beauty in this time now of COVID-19, great beauty in allowing ourselves to stumble through things. We don't have to be so polished, or like with this Jacques, Jacques Prévert piece, Barbara, it's the story of this man walking in the street in Brest, which is a city on the far west of, of France. And it's during World War II. And it's a beautiful day. And he's a happy resident of the city. And he sees this wonderful young woman named Barbara. And she's smiling. And it's raining. He smiles at her. She smiles at him. But they don't know each other. And then she throws herself into the arms of a man underneath the porch who loves her. And they embrace. And it's just this beautiful sight. And this man who's narrating the piece rejoices in the sight of Barbara holding this man who loves her. And then he goes on to say, oh, pardon me if I speak familiar to you, but I, I speak familiar to everyone I love. And remember the rain and remember the time, Barbara, don't forget. And then he switches it and the war comes. Mm -hmm. And Brest is destroyed. Mm -hmm. utterly, and it was utterly destroyed in the bombings. And in the end, there's nothing left. And he he says, Barbara, what happened to you? What happened to the man you loved? Is he alive? Is he dead? Where are you? He's pleading, the resident of Brest, Barbara could be anybody. 
It's all of us, really. We're all Barbara, really. Please don't forget the beauty, even though the place is ripped apart and there's nothing left of breast. And that's the story. And it's a wonderful recitation that Jacques Prévert does on, on YouTube. But it starts out, Rappelle-toi, Barbara, il pleuvait sans cesse ce breast ce jour-là, et tu marchais souriant, épanoui, ravi, ruisselant sous la pluie. Rappelle-toi, Barbara, il pleuvait sans cesse ce breast. Remember, Barbara, it was raining. You, you were smiling. I crossed. We passed by each other. You smile at me. I smile at you. And please don't forget. And then they move on through the story. Beautiful. And so at some point in my work, I will eventually have the words more or less as accurately pronounced as an American can do it, albeit still uh, limited. And yet it doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't make any difference. I love it. I love that you're, you know, I love that you're, you're memorizing a poem in French and, our, you know, it's true. We stumble through because it's not our, it's not our language that we're using every day, but it is beautiful because I don't know, there's something amazing about other languages to me. There's something amazing about the, what it unlocks as a sensibility and history. Why not stumble? That's a good question. We spend so much time aspiring to getting it right. There's a lot of beauty in stumbling, which I find more and more satisfying as I stumble more and more. Because in the end of the stumble, mm. perhaps lies balance. Mm, I love that. I'll say this last thing and then maybe I'll read um, two poems. I have this daily writing practice now and I have two people who I'm accountable to in this daily writing practice. There was a moment when I was really in the zone where whatever was happening, I knew I was in this special place where it was deep and it was full of interest. And I knew the writing coming out was a little out of body, something beyond me. And it was a great place to be. And then I'm no longer in the zone in a place where the practice itself is returning me to the page every day. And sometimes it feels like stumbling. It feels like feeling your way through. And I love the idea that it's the balance. This too is who we are. I'm going to say my second manuscript is taking forever. I think it's because the first book, I'm so happy with it. And it's not perfect, but somehow I'm so happy with it that I feel like there's a different kind of pressure with the second book. And some of it is maybe not allowing room for it to be somehow imperfect, right? So I'm just collecting all the shiny nuggets, but maybe the stumble needs to be there so that I and others can feel like it's a place where a person lived through, you know? Exactly. When I think about some of the really top level performers, they know how to stumble within their professionalism. They get so good at it that they then can just throw themselves out there and they stumble along because they're trying to explore the limits of where they can go even after deep rehearsal. Flaws are revealed even within the professionalism. That kind of vulnerability, there's something eye-opening about that. The lack of perfection feels accessible. And funny enough, we achieved perfection billions of years ago, collectively. Mm -hmm. We live in perfection. 
So mm-hmm. we really are off the hook when it comes to achieving it because it's already been done for us. All we have to do is dwell in it. I love this. Thank you so much. And I think that by bringing it into our conversation, it's very moving to me as somebody who is struggling with perfectionism. That's what I face every morning to some degree. It's like, how do I live a life that is maximally joyful where I'm heading toward the direction where I want to go to and what are my limits and how do I face them? And so it's a lot of pressure instead of just being. And that pressure comes from the culture. It comes from the first book you published, which was very well received. And now you have to do it again. Yeah. That's a westernized, industrialized approach to something that is universal and expansive and magical. Magic and perfection go together because they flow like the waves. But if we try to make it happen in our own way, then we're trying to control something that can never be controlled. I love that. Thank you so much for that. That means so much to me. I'm going to continue to mull this over because I will say this, that I've been for the past year, just, oh, something in my manuscript's missing. Something's missing because it's so polished. I'm going to read two poems from the manuscript that I like very much. This is helpful. So thank you. So this is a poem that I'm writing in my mother's voice. And it's about apocalypse now. So I'm reading two of them. Becoming ghost. I unhook the photograph from its nail, needle the aperture and find my youth history, a washout of dieting and wedding cake. In those days, I dreamt less of a private bed chamber and more a future without smoke. I sleep on the slab of a bed in the town of Belair, in an elementary school rented out. Coppola asks that I execute a facsimile of an adjacent life. What a relief to play the enemy and to find her a frightened 22-year-old shooting up at a UH-1 Huey. Revenge foretells my living well. In those days, I was frugal with words, opting to hide them instead like gold poured into a molar or cotton gauze stuffed into a cheek to stave off the rattle bitten into my gums. Becoming ghost. In Saigon, I wore my Aoyai side saddle on my husband's Seah Honda, the atmosphere a slurry of exhaust and humidity. My hair dragged like a black curtain through traffic. Engines riled, multiplying. Already it's early. Here, Coppola dresses down shirtless sometimes. Less fancy director, more man of the people gone mad. The gray waves zipper along the shore. Coppola says, I want it to smell like the real thing. I want to tell him the real thing is a landscape of work and death. The names of our ancestors slack in our mouths, just the art of loving your family line enough to reproduce it. 
I love that line, waves zippered along the shore. Thank you so much. I, you know, growing up in Southern California, I've spent a lot of time looking out at the water and at the waves. And especially my first book, it was a big part of my life. And water is important to both my parents. They both grew up along the shore. Vietnam has this long shoreline. So my dad was a fisherman. My mom grew up in the countryside. And so they're well acquainted with water. In Vietnamese, the word for country is the same as water. Nuuk, that means water, and it also means country. The earth is covered with more water than it is with land. Yes, I know. So much water everywhere. I love that. Of course, if you go down below the water, there's nothing but land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we have to have the seafloor at some point. (laughs) Right. So so you still have the earth, but it just has the water on top of it. Yeah, it's just submerged. So then if you think about the the earth as a borderless land. Stunning to think about. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Um, Yeah, that realization, I could see it coming to you. And it made me want to start crying a little bit. Just this idea that the earth... It's like one borderless land, which is true. There's something about the ways that, and we'll tie into the beginning, the ways that we are all very connected to one another during this pandemic. We're all experiencing this together. And yeah, poetry must also be, despite the different languages and histories, it must also be a borderless country. So now we close the show with the, with the country, the land, the sea, the, in the water, and in poetry, all, all mixed into one. And Kathy, if people would like to reach out to you, tell them how to do that. This is a good opportunity. Sure. You can come to my website, kathylinche.com. And I'm on social media. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the same, Kathy Lynche. And spell the last... Two, two parts of your name so people will get that right? It's C-A-T-H-Y-L-I-N-H-C-H-E. Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be part of this show. I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much, Nave. I so appreciate you too. Thanks yeah. for inviting me. You're so, you're so welcome. And that, my friends, concludes our conversation with Kathy Lynn Che. It was a pleasure to explore with Kathy all of these ideas around how to dwell within the poetic sensibilities of language and story. And I most especially enjoyed our stumbling attempts at trying to read French poetry in our American accents. And of course, we could work with French for the rest of our lives and never get the French accents exactly right, which is okay. We are speaking American accents. It's the exploration that is intriguing to me. And with that in mind, I thought you might like to hear Jacques Prévert's poem, Barbara, spoken with the proper French accent. So what follows is a musical rendition of Barbara by Jacques Prévert, and I'll follow by reading the English translation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti of Jacques Prévert's Barbara, so you'll get a taste of the poem in both languages. Rappelle-toi, Barbara, 
Il pleuvait sans cesse sur Brest ce jour-là Et tu marchais souriante, épanouie, ravie Ruisselante sous la pluie Rappelle-toi Barbara, il pleuvait sans cesse sur Brest Et je t'ai croisé rue de Siam Tu souriais et moi je souriais de même Rappelle-toi Barbara, toi que je ne connaissais pas Toi qui ne me connaissais pas Rappelle-toi Rappelle-toi quand même ce jour-là N'oublie pas un homme sous un porche s'abritait Et il a crié ton nom Barbara Et tu as couru vers lui sous la pluie Ruisselante, ravie, épanouie Et tu t'es jeté dans ses bras Rappelle-toi cela, Barbara Et ne m'en veux pas si je te tutoie Je dis tu à tout ce que j'aime même si je ne les ai vus qu'une seule fois, je dis tu à tous ceux qui s'aiment, même si je ne les connais pas. Rappelle-toi, Barbara, n'oublie pas cette pluie sage et heureuse sur ton visage heureux, sur cette ville heureuse, cette pluie sur la mer, sur l'arsenal, sur le bateau d'Ouessant. Cette pluie de fer, de feu, d'acier, de sang. Et celui qui te serrait dans ses bras amoureusement est-il mort, disparu Ou bien encore vivant Oh Barbara, il pleut sans cesse sur Brest comme il pleuvait avant. Mais ce n'est plus pareil et tout est abîmé. C'est une pluie de deuil terrible et désolée. Ce n'est même plus l'orage de fer, d'acier, de sang. Tout simplement des nuages qui crèvent comme des chiens. Des chiens qui disparaissent au fil de l'eau sur Brest et vont pourrir au loin, au loin, très loin de Brest dont il ne reste rien. That was Barbara by Jacques Prévert. And now here's the English translation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti of Barbara by Jacques Prévert. Remember, Barbara, it rained all day on breast that day and you walked smiling, flushed, enraptured, streaming wet in the rain. Remember, Barbara, it rained all day on breast that day, and I ran into you on Siam Street. You were smiling, and I smiled too. Remember, Barbara, you whom I didn't know, you who didn't know me. Remember, remember that day still? Don't forget. A man was taking cover on a porch, and he cried your name, Barbara. And you ran to him in the rain, streaming wet, 
enraptured, flushed, and you threw yourself into his arms. Remember that, Barbara? And don't be mad. If I speak familiarly, I speak familiarly to everyone I love. Even if I've seen them only once, I speak familiarly to all those who are in love, even if I don't know them. Remember, Barbara, don't forget that good and happy rain on your happy face, on that happy town, that rain upon the sea, upon the arsenal, upon the doisson boats. Oh, Barbara, what horrible stupidity war is. Now, what's become of you under the iron rain of fire and steel and blood and he who held you in his arms amorously? Is he dead and gone or still very much alive? Oh, Barbara, it rained all day on breast today as it was raining before, but it isn't the same anymore and everything is wrecked. It's a rain of mourning terrible and desolate, nor is it still a storm of iron and steel and blood, but simply clouds that die like dogs, dogs that disappear in the downpour drowning breast and float away to rot a long way off, a long, long way from breast, of which there's nothing left. And that was Lawrence Ferlinghetti's English translation of the poem Barbara by Jacques Prévert. Even though the poem ends on a somber note, there's nothing left in Brest after the bombing, just like the somber notes left after the bombing of Cambodia, where Kathy's family came from, and, of course, the Vietnam War, World War II, pick any war, and there's destruction all around. And yet, in Jacques Prévert's poem, Barbara, there's hope because the speaker, who doesn't know Barbara, is still lifting up the idea that even in the worst of times you'll find love. And when he asks Barbara, the man who held you in his arms amorously, is he dead and gone or very much alive? There's hope there. There's resurrection. There's a returning to life, even amongst the rubble. And when we think back to the poems Kathy read earlier in this show, they were full of life and celebration. Even though Kathy's poems were reflecting back on a time when her parents were living in uncertainty, and yet they managed to pull it all together, come to California, and start over again. And as a result, we were able to have Kathy on the show today reading poems about her parents when they were young like Barbara and the man she loved on that rainy afternoon in Brest during World War II. And with that in mind, I would like to encourage you, if you are so inclined, to take pen to paper and jot down something about your life. Who do you love? Who have you lost? Who do you care about? Where would you like to go next? What does your environment look like around you? Jot it down and make yourself a little piece of poetry and and possibly share it with somebody or just keep it for yourself. However you do it, it's a wonderful proposition to express yourself poetically and I encourage you to please do so. And if you would like to send it to me, I would be happy to receive it. JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can email me through my website. And if you send me your poem, I'll read it on the air and give you credit. 
So I look forward to hearing from you. It will be a great honor to be able to to find out more about where you're coming from, most especially to find out by way of your poetry. So thanks for considering that, which brings us around to the top of the hour. And I would like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, as well as on other community radio stations like KCEI, out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you so much, Walter Parks, for everything you do. We really appreciate that. Love your work. And if you out there listening would like to know more about Walter, WalterParks.com is a good place to take a look. If you would like to know more about the name Twice Five Miles Radio, TwiceFiveMiles.com is a good place to start. The name Twice Five Miles comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. And in it, the great Kubla Khan demands a sunny pleasure dome be built around twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers girdled round. So that's where the line comes from. Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. If you would like to get in touch with me, jamesnave.com is my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. I'd like to know what you're up to wherever you are in the world. What's your news? Do you have a poem you would like to submit and have me read over the air? Or if you have an mp3 of some music or a poem that you have recorded or made, I would be more than happy to Receive your work and include it in the show. Like I said, you can reach me through jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. So, I await your response. And, finally, thank you ever so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to spend a little bit of time with you every week. And on that note, I do hope you tune in again next week. And until then, I will catch you on the turnaround somewhere down the line.